Hey folks, Garrett here. In this latest episode of the Most Awesome Founder Podcast, we introduced Leah Grunhage, Vehau alum and founder of Avery Fertility, a Berlin-based startup that provides both men and women with top-notch education and care around fertility planning and treatment. We'll be discussing Leah's founder journey, her evolution from a morally management team to becoming a founder herself, the challenges of tackling cultural taboos like sexuality and reproduction, and so much more. Leah is one of the most open and engaging founders I've had the pleasure to host on this podcast, and an absolute pleasure to chat with. I hope you enjoy our conversation as much as I did. This episode is brought to you by WHU, the Otto Beisheim School of Management. WHU is reshaping the way students learn about business, management, finance, and entrepreneurship through its innovative programs and partnerships in Germany and across the globe. To learn more about this globally ranked university, visit whu.edu today. Coming to you from WHU, on the banks of the Rhine River, in beautiful Fallendar, Germany. This is the best and most awesome founder podcast. A show about entrepreneurs, innovators, advisors, and educators, and the stories that make them who they are today. Cool. Leah Grunhage, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. I've really been looking forward to this conversation. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really happy to be here or here at the Zoom meeting. <laughs> well, I know we were really hoping to do this in, in person. Um, as we discussed, the, the microphone makes the voice a lot deeper and sexier sometimes than, than the, twangy, the twangy Zoom. But uh, yeah, such is the world we live in right now. I think every, every podcast in the world is facing this challenge. But I'm still glad we get to e-meet virtually this way and uh, we can tell a little bit about your story. Yes, I'm happy to. Um, okay, so I was born in Aachen. Um, it's the, I was told it's the most western city in Germany, um, but maybe uh, maybe that's just uh, a story that's, that's been told. Uh, it's a small town. It's a very proud town. Um, I, I would always say it's a good town to come home to. And um, so there I went to a Catholic all-girls school. So I think that's definitely something uh, that kind of shaped my adolescence. Uh, I, I find many people um, that kind of find this uh, like an all-girls school, a very old-school thingy. Uh, to be honest, I have to say, I think or I've learned is quite the contrary. I actually, I never wanted to go there. Like my, my, I have an elder sister, she's three years older and she wanted to go there. So she, she went there and then my parents were so happy with the school that they wanted me to go there as well. And I was like, no way. Like I want to be at a school where there are also boys. Um, and, but they, um, uh, yeah, they, I wouldn't say they convinced me, but they kind of made the decision for me. And uh, I can say that I, today I'm so happy. Uh, that they didn't let me interfere with that, and so um, and I mean, I mean, why why is that that I'm so happy about? Because I think while many people think like an all girls school is is old fashioned, 
Um, I think what it does is that like a much higher share, for example, of girls is then into mathematics and into physics um, and into biology. Like all uh, the, like it's not that girls then tend more towards language and art and uh, that stuff, but it's more like even out. And you see that kids, um, no matter what their gender, go more for their natural interests. And um, so yeah, that's that's where I'm where I'm coming from. And then actually at this school, uh, I did business at school from the Boston Consulting Group. Like it was a school project to get um, children or young adolescents uh, interested into um, uh, into consultancy and business. And well, they got me like after that project. I was like, okay, where do I have to study? Uh, to do what you're doing. Um, like back then, I was really uh, excited about that stuff. And so actually, they recommended um, to me the WHU. Uh, I, I went there. And to be honest, when I first looked at the web page and I saw that it was a private school, I like a private school was never on my radar. Like, just never occurred to me. And um, But I went there and it just from the first moment felt like the right place for me to study. And so I was uh, lucky enough um, to, uh, to get accepted and I spent an amazing time studying there. Uh, like, I mean, obviously, if you have spent some time at WHU and also kind of afterwards reflecting on your studies, um, there are probably things that, um, like there's not only good, obviously, um, but kind of doing a resume, I can definitely say I'm so happy uh, for, for the staff studying there. I found the friends for my life uh, at the school. And so this, this all has turned out great. And uh, I think when we were studying at WHU, it was still all about kind of banking was on the decline of uh, in priorities where to go after you study. Uh, and consultancy was... Uh, was leading the pack <laughs> and um, when we I did my bachelor's and my master's immediately like back to back and um, and so consultancy still leading the pack I actually joined the consultancy for one year after my studies a small one but they're pretty fast realized that this is not what gives me energy like I I know so many people, or actually not so many, but some people that really say I honestly enjoy working uh, at a consultancy. Actually, my sister being one of them, she studied physics, so uh, like and and like, um, like I would say she got the brains. Like she's all wow. Uh, and then at some point she she went to McKinsey, and she's really really happy there. So that's a kind of a good example. And uh, yeah, but I just a small detour. Pretty fast realized that this is not my my mecca, and uh, so I quit after I think already like seven eight months, uh, and then looked for something new. Uh, I wanted to go to Berlin to joining a startup, and I looked at kind of what was out there like fashion, shoes, furniture, and then there was Amelie, sex toys period. <laughs> uh, and I don't know, I, it was super intriguing. Like I found it so, like it was so different from the other things I looked at. Like the other ones, they, they were kind of obvious. And what I, 
my best friend, like he said, okay, you, you've got to go to Amoni. Like Amoni is your thing. I was not so sure, but kind of, yeah, it definitely made me curious. And like from a business perspective back then, it was, it really made a lot of sense. Like the market was neglecting 50% of the customers. And even though the female organism is like so much harder to reach, like all the players were just focusing on men, even though they then were selling female toys. Like it was all kind of weirded up. And um, so from a business perspective, like that, I, I thought, okay, this makes so much sense. But then I honestly have to say, maybe because uh, I, I I have this Catholic all-girl school background, I was a little bit like, okay, do I want to sell sex toys? Um, and obviously, Amoli in 2014, that was, um, was at a really different point compared to where it is now. Like, when I was telling people what I was doing, it was not saying, hey, I work at Amoli, and everybody is like, <laughs> but it was like, I work at Amoli, hmm? I'm selling sex toys. Ah, okay. So, yeah. So I really like that. Was, that was a different story, and so there was actually, and I mean, I met uh, I met Leah and Polly, and like the people I met, they really got me. Like the business idea, like from a business perspective, makes so much sense. Um, and but then I had this this last struggle, um, and then I actually talked to my dad, and he was like, okay. Yeah, okay, what are you worried about? Like that maybe one day you won't get another job because you did that? Well, probably if that should be the case, it's not the job that you really want or that wouldn't be a person that you would be would really like working for. Yes, and so I started at Amoli. I spent there five incredible, incredible years. Um, they've definitely changed my life uh, a lot. I started as a business development manager, like really from doing the, the next um, financial round with Leah and Polly to organizing the Christmas party. I was all over the place. Um, and then kind of made my way. I looked at every dark and light corner uh, of this company. And I think I joined like four weeks after I joined. I was in my, my friends only called me Amorelia. Um, and and that was that. And I really, I think over these five years, I grew. Um, like I was so close to that company, like it was like it was just one thing, which um, which also had its next effect. We might come to that later in the podcast. And um, yeah, so I spent five years uh, there. I don't know. Like, all the problems are long. I'm trying to work with them. Like, or just <laughs> well, going. I I would like to ask a question actually before you continue on your story. Um, I had a. Uh, a guest on the podcast last year, Tiago Cesar, who's uh, with Cansativa, and he comes from a family uh, loaded with Catholic priests, and um, and now he's selling cannabis. <laughs> so he was talking quite a bit about the conflict that existed with his deeply Catholic family, and now him being a quote-unquote legal drug dealer, as he kind of joked. Here you are coming from a Catholic Catholic girls' school to selling sex toys. So th there might be a little bit of an interesting comparison there. I'm curious, how did your family respond when you said, this is the business I'm going into? Yeah, I think like, probably what, what uh, 
talking about how my grandparents uh, reacted probably shows the, the two um, positions I was facing. So I had grandparents on the one side, told them all about it. Since then, they've never asked me again what I'm working on. Like the only thing they ask me is, but the people you are working with, they are nice, right? <laughs> That's about it. So that's that was the one side, and then the other side, um, my grandpa, who actually was always kind of the guiding star in my um, like, where should I study? What should I study? Where should I work? <laughs> and when I told him about it, uh, he was like, "Well, Beate Uze made some fine money with that business, so I guess you'll be able to do the same." <laughs> so, and um, yeah, I think that's. That probably kind of shows the uh, the two reactions uh, there were. Um, luckily, it was more of the way more of the supporting front, um, and and I think that's in the end. And actually, this is something I learned rather later. Like as I said, I was really intrigued by Amoli because of the business idea, and then when I joined the company, I actually realized how much. Uh, it means to me working on something that is relevant to to everybody. Like sexuality concerns everybody. That doesn't mean that sex toys are for everyone, but everyone is curious about the topic because sexuality for us as human beings is key to being happy, like being ha living a sexually satisfied life and knowing your very personal uh, preferences is um, is actually to being happy and and working on something that is so um, elemental to to us as a human being that I, I learned that later in the process but um, I learned that and I think that's also something now with Avery um, that I, that I I am and I will always try to kind of stick to in my professional life. Um, thinking and working on topics which are relevant for everyone. And, um, and I think because the topic is relevant to everyone and everyone is kind of curious, at some point, once I learned how the story works, when I tell people that I'm working at a sex shop, um, once I had that, um, that ring to the story, uh, I, I mean, you can enjoy it because everybody is interested. It's, it's, you know, it is a universal topic, you know, no matter what your, your background or your, your gender or your, your sexual preferences or whatever, like sexuality is an important part, yet it is still, uh, I mean, maybe this is the puritanical American side of me talking, but in many ways, it's still um, stigmatized. 
you know, as someone that was on the, especially on the business development side of these things, did you um, confront this topic of, of stigma much of discomfort and the way people, you know, I think it's become more and more mainstream as generations have moved on. But I think at the beginnings of Amora Lee, even not so long ago, it was still a tricky topic. Did you, how did you face that issue of stigma? Um, yeah, so most definitely, I think breaking the, the stigma um, is, was, and probably still is key to working at Amroli. So, I mean, I at some point I I moved to uh, owning kind of the the strategic brand marketing and the marketing, the performance marketing in general. And obviously there, it's about communication. And then it was all about how do we break that up and how I think I think obviously now if we look at the market, there are a lot more players who are also very much more open or direct. I know back then we always described Amorelli not as a um, not. We always said we are not a brave brand because we we felt kind of like the how do you say it in English the Trojan horse. Trojan horse, yeah. Like moving into society, like we know that the goal was like reaching the middle of society. But we always felt like a church on hearts, like not, we didn't want to step on anybody's toes. We didn't want, we didn't want to um, provocate um, anyone. We didn't want to offend people because we wanted to make it easy um, to deal with the topic. Because, I mean, we learned in so many, like we did so much research about how do people handle their sexual desires and how do people talk about sexuality. And what you learn is they just don't talk about it. And um, there is this the German, or it's not a saying, it's like, can I say it in German? Yeah. Um, so, I mean, the, once you lack words of describing something, like you've reached an end, like it's a dead end. Yeah. And because, I mean, I, I remember when I started at Amorali, I mean, I never, the, the word clitoris, and then you, like, this uh, This is an anal toy, and this is a vibrator, and it goes into the vagina, and the penis just goes, no, it's like, so these words, like, I was completely overwhelmed, and, like, I, I couldn't, uh, I couldn't handle it, and then, obviously, working um, at this company, you get more comfortable um, talking about it and describing it, because it's just part of your everyday life. And suddenly, every conversation uh, around that gets easier. But people do not feel comfortable talking about it because they don't. And if you just don't use the words, it's just it's just so much harder um, to to describe uh, what you want or what you don't want. And kind of it's in the end, it was all about like the kind of how we deal with sexuality is such is still behind closed doors and well-closed windows and, um, like, better just don't touch this. Um, and so in the beginning, really, our communication was trying not to be offensive, not to push people um, um, or overwhelm them, but quite on the contrary, like, more like making a friendly offer um, and saying, hey, sexuality is something important and it's important 
um, for, for being happy. So why not try and talk about it? Why not try and, um, and order um, a beginner sex toy? Like just being really um, um, careful. It's, it's a really interesting approach. And, you know, I, I'm wondering how much of it is the target customer and how much of it is the time period. Like right now, I'm the, the lead mentor for a startup um, that's currently in Techstars London called Troglo, and they're an LGBTQ sexual health app. And, you know, I don't know if it's that they're speaking to their target market or it's a new generation of, of millennials building a business, but um, they are very risque. You know, they're very risque. Like, how many blowjobs did you give today is one of the questions, you know? And, you know, did did you do anal today? And they're very, like, and it's cheeky and it's kind of funny and it's, you know, for some people it might be a little shocking. And they, they're building their brand around that. And, you know, you got, it sounds like you guys kind of took more of an approach, like, let's let's uh, create a new customers rather than just reach the ones that are already there. So building, building a new, a new segment essentially and reaching more people. Is that, is that kind of, was that kind of the strategy behind that? Yeah, totally. Um, yeah. So, and I mean, if I look at the communication of Amelie today and I think that's so right, it is, um, or it has become more direct. Um, and this is great. I, I mean, this is also a development. I'm, I mean, you now it's 2020 when we kind of started the whole thing was 2013, 14. Like, I mean, obviously things things have changed, and you can be more direct. And I think that's that's great. I mean, this is, I mean, that in the end was also something we were working um, towards. And I, I think one of my my favorite campaigns that we did, I think nobody realized in the end, but that was really, that was so cool. We said, um, that was 2016, and for us, that was a really brave moment. Like, we were kind of moving away from the being all vanilla, and, uh, like, the criticism we, uh, we always got from uh, the gay community is that we are so vanilla, um, and like, so... <laughs> Yeah, boring. Um, but then 2016, we tried uh, we tried something and we said, okay, is there, um, and I think also very important, Amorelie is perceived as a um, as a couple's brand. So we were all about, and I think that was also something new in 2013, like really addressing the couple. Like you as a couple can use that and that can be an experience. Like even though that the toy is um, is for the woman, you can experience it as, as a couple. And then uh, what we always learned from our, from the interviews that we did is that you have this really, like once you've tried it, like you have this really special moment together because you've experienced something new. And experiencing something new together is is great. And it's just, yeah, it's, uh, it's something that just you two have. And uh, so what we did is that we casted real couples and then um, gave them a box of toys. And then our camera team would move in like immediately after they had sex, like they were still in bed and then do an interview. And that was so, I mean, the, the whole, um, the production was crazy because we had this house, we rented this house and we always did like a completely new room. And 
So when the couple was in there, like we moved, like we had this dead zone of 20 meters around the house and nobody was like allowed to even touch, like cross the dead zone, like somehow, like, so that they had like complete privacy. But the, the interviews that we had them, they were so, so, so special, so honest. Um, and uh, I think that was the first braver uh, marketing or more direct marketing campaign that we, that we made, yeah. Awesome, awesome. So I want to get back to the Leah story. So you've, you've now spent a few years uh, helping to grow Amora Lee, kind of working your way through that experience. What, hap- what happens next? What happens next? Yeah, so, so I started there in 2014, and then um, I think in the end I was kind of uh, responsible for the whole commercial part. So when uh, Polly, Sebastian Pollock, moved out uh, in 2018, beginning of 2018, um, I um, became, uh, or I made the step to managing director, and then I was kind of responsible for the whole commercial part. So, so on the one hand, doing all the... The, like everything where the products were coming from, our private label and third, la- third party brands, and then the marketing and the sales channels. And yeah, and then I, I kind of, there was still the point when, where, when I had no idea, okay, what could ever be my next step? Like I was so intertwined um, with that company and that I couldn't even see um, beyond the horizon. <laughs> and um, and then in last year, um, uh, in the summer, I think the, the right idea and the right people crossed my way. And then I realized, okay, there's a, suddenly there was the next step and it felt very, very natural. And even though I, I never thought that I would become the founder myself, and it was honestly never, ever my plan, because I think I'm, like, in general, I would say I'm terrific at work, and I have to say, I like work for people. Um, I think that's really, I, I don't, like, either, or maybe people don't talk about it that much, um, but I haven't met many people, but I can really say, if I have somebody that I really admire, I love working for them and making their lives easier. It's something I I, I derive pleasure from. Um, and then you're founding a company, then you don't work for anybody else, and you just have to pleasure yourself. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, so many metaphors in here, but. <laughs> yeah, I thought, yeah but, uh, like also, like, there was always something like uh, in the Amorali environment. Uh, yeah, you you had to be careful with language, and now that I spent 20 minutes talking about Amorali, okay, that sounds, okay, that came out. Yeah. <laughs> What I what I what I really meant. Okay, so uh, so yeah, so becoming a founder myself was not uh, was not in my um, um, was not in my plan. And then on the other hand, I guess that Amorli and uh, seeing what building a company is like. Also, yeah, I mean, I loved that. That was. Uh, that's an amazing experience seeing something grow and especially with Amorli also seeing something changing um, I mean maybe that sounds a bit big like changing society but I think how we think about sexuality and 
Text-wise, that's definitely something I, I, I guess we changed over the past years. And I mean, now you can buy our text-wise at the M, the most ordinary place there is in Germany. And I, I mean, that's, that is something. And yeah, seeing how something that you work on can, can change something like that. Yeah, that's, that intrigued me. And, and then the idea for Avery, I think in the first step, it's, um, originated from, from a personal experience. So, um, a friend of mine, um, back then, 34, tried, was, or said that, that they, she and her husband were trying to get pregnant now. And like our whole friend circle was like, yay, and all positive. And like, not even, not even a blink of concern. And then it has been such a hard way, and she's, um, yeah, it, it just turned out that it wasn't that easy, and uh, was the first thing uh, that was out of control, and not, um, yeah, which which you couldn't make happen just by working harder or wanting it more or doing it better. It's just not in your hands, and therefore the first time I realized that there is such a gap between what we or how all of us like I'm 31 now and we all say yeah of course we want to have children but we all don't realize that our most fertile days lie way beyond us like they are gone <laughs> for good and yeah so kind of the, that was the first time that I kind of realized okay there, there is something like here's something off like our society or we as people were getting older and older when we we're having our first child i think in the 80s we were 25 when we had our first child in germany and now we are um 30 and people who studied are 34 on average so that is like society changed so much in only a few decades like this is really a short period of time where kind of everything flipped like for, for our bodies. It's such a huge difference getting pregnant at 25 or at 30 or at 34. So um, so that has changed, but our bodies, uh, they didn't get the memo and truth be told, they never will. <laughs> so, so kind of our mindset and how we deal with fertility, that hasn't changed. It's super reactive. Like we only deal with our fertility um, once we actually are trying to have a child or we want to have a child. And yeah, so there is, we, I, we, I realized that there is a, an immense information gap. And as we learn about contraception, um, from, I think, when we are probably, I don't know, 11 or 12. And I think that probably is also something that's developed over time so that now we have really good education about contraception. Like, it starts probably at home, but if it doesn't, you will learn it at school, and then you're as a gynecologist, and kind of, this is taken care of. Like, um, And I think you can wake, like, any woman and probably also every man um, in the middle of the night, and they would tell you, bam, 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 <laughs> this is how you won't get pregnant. Um, yeah, but we actually know really little about how we actually can get pregnant. And, um, and yeah, so kind of this is 
this is where the idea for Avery um, originated. Um, so it's all about it's all about fertility, um, educating about fertility, and easing access to fertility care. And yeah, so that is the that was the idea. And then we actually so I made the decision um, last year in summer, and then I kind of full time joined. Um, like Freddie and Fabi, my two co-founders, uh, they already started because they were already out of jobs. I know Fabi from uh, from the WHU, so he studied there as well. And um, he knew Freddie from uh, from the Boston Consulting Group. So this is kind of how we uh, um, found each other. And so they already got started, and then I joined full time in uh, in January this this year. Um, and we actually started with the um, with the idea, okay, let's educate about fertility and let's make people aware that we need to start to think about fertility much earlier. Like the earlier we we start to think about it, the more options we have in case something is is off. And it should actually something be like I mean the breast cancer prevention. Uh, I mean now October was uh, the breast uh, cancer prevention month and. Like you see by now, you'll always see like how to um, um, feel if there is anything or might be something abnormal going on in, in your breasts. And probably with with fertility, it's also kind of a to get more um, in a prevention uh, uh, mode. Like um, start early, um, observe it through the years. If you say you want to have children uh, at one point. Um, and then and then see where it takes you. And so we started about educating about, fer uh, about fertility, first step, and then how we are making money. Uh, we are also educating um, about social freezing because for women, that is one way of handling this. I think you can learn about your fertility and once you do, there are obviously more options than social freezing. You might want to start your family earlier. You might say, hey, I'm fine with that. I can see where life is taking me. Or you might say, hey, yeah, uh, I want kind of a safety net, so I'm going for the social freezing um, treatment. And um, yeah, so we thought, okay, so we are educating about uh, social freezing, and then uh, we kind of, if some, uh, if a woman is interested, we connect her with a fertility clinic, and if she actually is doing the treatment, um, then that would be a, a benefit. And so that was um, the the idea that we started with, and as founding a company. Um, is or yeah, probably a, a lot of founder, founders know this. Like you, you're flipping around, or you have to flip around the idea quite sometimes, times, uh, multiple times. And um, yeah, so we talked to uh, hundreds of women in regards of this uh, fertility education and social freezing, and we realized, okay, we're taking the second step before the first. Like the treatment is, you do the treatments one, once you learned about your fertility. Um, it's not an immediate, okay, yeah, social freezing. Social freezing it is. Um, because, I mean, also, obviously, it's a really, um, it is a treatment. Um, like you're undergoing a, a hormone um, treatment over two weeks. And then the axles need to be retrieved. So that's definitely... Um, 
not easy on your body first. Second, uh, it also costs, costs quite some money, um, which uh, insurance um, don't, uh, don't cover today. And, um, and yeah, so we, we had all these talks and we said, okay, people actually want to, want to talk to women, they want to learn about their fertility. Like, can I understand whether, where am I with my fertility? If it declines over age, is it declining faster for me or slower? Am, am I in my kind of the normal range for my age or do I have to worry already? And so we started thinking um, about, about this topic. And actually, if you go to a fertility clinic, uh, I've been to many. Uh, very, um, yeah, very, very special place. And um, if you if you're there, it's basically the first thing that uh, that they would do is a blood test, and to do exactly that, assess your fertility and where you're at in uh, in, in in regards to to your age. And so we partnered up with a German laboratory and um, conducted a study with them, um, seeing whether if you if you take capillary blood, so blood that uh, you can just at home uh, with a little stink to your finger and um, just take a sample at home, whether this delivers the same results compared to venous blood, which a doctor would take um, in a fertility clinic. And turns out uh, it's feasible. And um, so kind of this is where we've, and we launched it just now in September. So we've been working on it. Um, since the end of last year, but as you can imagine, partnering with a laboratory in 2020 <laughs> is tough. <laughs> uh, they had bigger fish to fry, um, but yeah, we uh, we made it, and so this is where we are at today. So we have this at-home test kit um, now for women, but we're working on a solution for um, men as well because fertility is not. It is perceived as a female thing, um, but it is not. Like if uh, if a couple has um, or struggles um, um, getting pregnant, uh, it's forty percent um, that the reason is uh, with the woman forty percent, with the man twenty percent. There is not a medical kind of indication, or it's both of them. So it actually concerns uh, women and men. Um, but yeah, we now started with this at-home fertility test for, for women. And yeah, it's all about in the end um, to, to change the mindset yet again around how in our society we, we deal with, with our fertility. Because if we want to have children at a later point of time in our lives, um, we better make our way that we deal with fertility a different one, make it more proactive. Because it can be that you're 33, you're doing that test and you're in early menopause. Like it's not often obviously, but it can happen. And then you're trying to have children, um, but then it's not for you anymore. If you start tracking or having a look at your fertility in your mid twenties, um, then you can observe it kind of yearly and you might still have a chance of kind of turning the needle um, around. Um, so, yeah, so I think this is something that as kind of the age that we have in our first, first children has changed over the past decades, over the next decades, um, the way that we're dealing with our fertility will change. And we with Avery Fertility are planning 
um, to, to lead that pack. Also, such an important topic. And, you know, I actually want to bring it back to a question I asked you earlier. Um, I have, of course, I'm at the age where most of my friends are either having kids or have already had kids. And one of the things that um, I've seen as a pattern is most of my friends will not go public with their pregnancy until they're, you know, maybe 12, 10, 12 weeks into it and they start feeling secure. And um, and certainly not when they're, there's a saying when I lived in Canada, they'd say pulling the goalie, which means they're going off the birth control and leaving the net open. And, uh, you know, not a lot of people kind of say, hey, we're, we're trying because maybe there's a little bit of a stigma that exists as well. Yeah, about, you know, and one of us not being fertile or what does that say about our virility as a man or there, our age as a, a woman? Like, do you face the same kind of pattern of like, how do you overcome these challenges of, of stigmatization and making people feel secure with these things and but still private or, or whatever that might be? Yeah, so I mean, definitely there is uh, yet again a stigma. Um, and I mean, there's a stigma around trying to have kids and it's not working. There's a stigma when you're going to a fertility clinic. There's a stigma. Like, it's all like the, the way to pregnancy. And I think uh, don't get us started on when you're pregnant or when then you have your first child. I think there are like, um, um, yeah. Um, so that is definitely there. And I think yet again, it's about opening up the conversation and there needs to be someone who addresses the the topic and who is starting the, the conversation and let people know that they are not alone. I mean, why are we not, or as soon as you hear that somebody else has the same um, issues, you feel, you already feel better with your own. Because um, there's someone you can relate to, there's someone you can discuss it with, and and I mean that that doesn't only concern fertility. I think I've made that experience in in many different stages of of my life. Uh, I think one of them being um, where I made that very experience that if you know that other people are experiencing the same issues, you feel. You feel already a lot more normal. Was when I, I was at Amorili, kind of having. It was in the year when I took on my first team, and I was the first. It was the first time that I was was leading in 2015. Then it was the first time I was leading other people. And oh my god, I felt like all the time I'm not doing a good enough job. What do people think about what I'm doing here? I need to work more I need to do it better and also probably tomorrow they will find out I'm the completely wrong person for the job and then I need to leave the country probably 
like it was all, all in my head all the time. And I felt so alone with it because it was actually something that nobody addressed. Like neither in my, like not at work. I mean, obviously I wouldn't address it at work because then like who knows? <laughs> Um, but then also with my friends, like it's, it's uh, I mean, obviously I told them to my closest, but yeah, I, there was nobody really, um, or nobody was experiencing, or at least they wouldn't tell me the, the same thing. And then my best friend, actually, he handed me, um, or he gave me the, the book of Sheryl Sandberg, Lean In. And there, I mean, yeah, everybody has, uh, has read it. It's probably one of the, I think one of two business books I read. I also read Option B. <laughs> nice. And um, yeah, and then when we were talking, I think it's the whole sit at the table um, um, chapter, and she was talking about the um, the imposter syndrome, and that um, and this is something that especially women uh, I think have a tendency uh, towards, and. It me personally so much that I realized, okay, this is a, this is a system. Like I'm telling myself, and I'm taking like there's so much self doubt, and um, like this voice in my head always tells me that I need to make it better and go a bit further, and the next mile, and otherwise uh, uh, there will be very bad consequences. And once I read that she, like Sheryl Sandberg, this amazing woman like being COO at Facebook, like, I mean, she has everything under control. Um, once I read that, or once she described this to me, uh, I realized, okay, this is, this is just, this is a thing. And once I realized that it is a thing, I could start working on kind of for myself, um, I, I mean, I still, I would say I still have this in me, like, this is not good enough. I should make it better. But by now I can kind of take it apart from how this can make my work actually better. And this also, but this doesn't mean that I'm a kind of bad person and kind of detaching this. And by now using this, this self-doubt or this kind of constant struggle to make something better or to like, to, to, uh, yeah, um, to, be good at my job um by now is something which i can which i more use as a tool and it doesn't like tear me down um and so this was a huge detour now to stigma around fertility but i think once you um once you listen to a conversation or read a book and talk to someone or just read something uh, on the internet and learn, okay, there are other people struggling with things as well. And this is how they deal with them. Um, this, um, it helps already. Um, instead of feeling alone with a topic or a problem or a thought in your head. And um, yeah, so, so this, is a, this is definitely something that we want to do, like opening up that conversation and um, making... Um, um, making people aware that they are not alone in their fertility journey. And fertility journeys in our days have become, are so individual um, because I think it, they were really linear also only a, a few decades ago. Like you married and then you were getting pregnant. And now like everybody finds their own way. 
And even though they are so individual, obviously there are also common um, common things um, that we can experience, that we can share, and that we can then learn from one another. Right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so much I want to unpack out of the what you just talked about there. I mean, this idea of experiencing the imposter syndrome while you were working at at uh, Amora Lee, I, I I can only see that as such a fortunate experience because so many people that go from careers to being entrepreneurs and being founders, I think being a founder is where imposter syndrome hits you in the face a million times because you know, you're charting new territory and you're like, do I really know what I'm doing here? Probably not. Am I good enough? Probably not, you know? And on a daily basis, you're getting kind of pounded with this, oh, I, I don't belong here. I, I'm a CEO or a founder of a company and I have no idea what I'm doing. It sounds like you, you got that kind of early enough. Do you think that prepared you uh, a little bit more for taking over and, and doing your own thing? Yeah, definitely. So, um, yeah, so that was definitely, um, I mean, this part of the journey wasn't easy, but I mean, you, you, um, I'm so grateful for it today. Um, and for sure, these five years being at Amoli and learning to deal with that and, um, kind of also, I mean, by now I can say that in the end, joining the managing director team, like I, I worked for that and kind of in the end I earned it to, to be there, but it took me a long, long while um, that I was able to kind of say that out um, loud. But now I know what I'm, I'm capable of, also know what I'm not capable of, and I feel much more kind of at peace. I mean, like here also, like founding this company, I can also only do what I can do. Again, and obviously I will always try to um, to to make the best out of it and so that the company hopefully survives, even though probably it won't. <laughs> um, yeah, and... Um, and for, for all of this, I definitely feel that I'm kind of more um, at peace and that this kind of this pressure of um, succeeding um, is there as an ambition, but it just doesn't get to me as a person. And I think that's the, that is the, the, the question, whether you can close your laptop at 6 or 11 p.m., like whatever the time is, like, and obviously that changes over days. But if you can close it and then have a good time, or whether your thoughts, because they're you let them so close to who you are and like who you are as a human being, um, and and obviously for that you cannot it doesn't it's not sufficient to close a laptop because then it's just um, yeah you just question yourself so much and just detach this who you are as a human being and that you're worthy as a human being. And the, the, the job doesn't make you worthy as a human being. Um, and um, yeah. yeah. That's such a, I mean, I wish someone had taught me that lesson 10 years ago, you know, because building my first high growth company 
my entire identity was intertwined with that business. And as the business did well, my my confidence and my well-being inflated. And when the business struggled, so did mine. And I could literally not detach my life from, from my business because I think it's a lot of people, artists, musicians, they face these same kind of complexities of like, this is my creative outlet. This is an expression of me. And if people don't like it, they don't like me, you know? And it's taken multiple... Uh, iterations of being a founder to say, hey, wait a second, this is just some of your art is beautiful and some of it is hideous and you want to throw it in the trash. And that's that's the nature of it. But I, what I really want to touch on is one other piece that you mentioned earlier, which is like this idea of knowing that there's other people in the same facing the same experiences and challenges as you. And you've already imparted some really great nuggets of wisdom there. But I want you to talk for a moment to other people that may be soon forging a similar path as you. Um, there are a lot of young people at VHU and, and throughout Germany and the world, women and men that are, um, you know, getting ready to enter the, the startup life and become founders. You know, you've been in a scale up, worked your way through that role. Now you're a founder yourself. If there was a lesson that you wish you had been taught earlier, like it with me separating my identity, but is if there was something earlier, a piece of wisdom that you would impart on someone about to go on this journey, um, what what would it be? Yeah. So I mean, definitely the the thing I talked about now, the past, I don't know, was it five or ten minutes? I mean, that's that's one of that's definitely one of them because I think that uh kind of can answer your question how you um i mean this now probably is also about succeeding but this is also about how you can be happy in your life like for like i think that that definitely made made a huge difference for me but i won't go there now again i think other um things that i um or like one I, one thing I've observed uh, also during the time or over the past kind of five or seven years, um, and also when people ask me like like how did you, I mean the way I worked my way up from the business development manager in 2014 to being a managing director at Amoholi was probably a, a unique way, and I think one. One thing that was completely and always utterly normal for me is that I took responsibility for everything. Obviously, this is also not always good. Like you see, you should see where they are, uh, where you draw the line. Um, coming back to that other topic, but I think the I never thought this is not my job, and we have this uh, kind of value and coming from. The WHU, um, I kind of, I almost tattooed it in my arm. And it was company first, no ego culture. And obviously, this doesn't mean company first in a, a company over people, not at all. But it's like no ego culture. Like your ego comes second. And if the company succeeds, you will succeed. And And this really, I hammered that in my head. And and then I was on the train with full speed. Okay, company first. And I, it 
didn't like, oh, sorry, it didn't matter at all whether something uh, was burning or there was a problem in a completely different department. I kind of, I always felt responsible and I would always go in and I would never let um, let something lose. Like, I always felt like, okay, I have to, like, everything, like, where where is everyone? And And this is actually something, and I think that applies for a job, but this taking responsibility also applies for your personal development. Like I've, I've had so many talks about personal development and people sitting in front of me and say, I want, uh, I want to develop. Um, and I think it, often people, or they, they seem to not realize that they are in the driver's seat and that personal development is not happening like beside your job like a like a separate project which is called personal development but it's happening on the job and how much you get in there and if you get in there you will there will be a next task and a bit bigger task and this is where your personal development is happening and kind of yeah this then taking also responsibility for your own for anything in your life. I think also one thing I learned with conflicts, like there, there were so many conflicts where I said, okay, here's 100% of the responsibility over there. And then I learned, no, like if you have a conflict, 50% of the responsibility stays with you because you have to solve it. Like no matter what an asshole the other person might be. Um, but if it's your problem, like if you have a problem, the responsibility sticks with you because you gotta, like, you cannot just rely on the other person um, to solve it for you. And yeah, so this having this mindset of, and I mean, that's also great. You're always in the driver's seat. You can always change anything around you. And don't externalize responsibilities. Don't externalize, um, yeah, don't externalize your life. <laughs> Own your shit. And manage it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and then I think um, I think one other thing is it's um, it's all about the people that you work with. I mean, if you work um, like no matter whether you're the nine to five guy or the seven to eleven p.m. guy, um, it's a huge part of your life in both ways. Like, and uh, make it fun. And I think in the end, you can only make it fun if you enjoy the purpose the people that are around you and just yeah I mean don't yeah make make sure and also they are listening to your gut feeling whether you like working with somebody or you don't. And if you don't then just move on. Mm -hmm. Right. Wow. Good. Wise wise words without a doubt. And give me a glass of wine and I could do this conversation all night. There's so many, so many things to unpack there. But uh being being cognizant of your time, um, I do. I ask every guest on the podcast a couple of kind of silly questions just to get a little bit of insight into the non-business side of things. Um, one thing I have noticed in my life is you can learn a lot about someone by looking at their bookshelf. I know you already mentioned a great Sheryl Sandberg book, um, but is there anything that you're reading right now? that uh, or have read recently that you could recommend yeah so 
I'm just going to show, you, show that to you. I mean, nobody will see it on the podcast, but I just repeat that the Outwater Bank has transitioned from niche position to international recognition book. Yesterday was in the middle. No, but uh, I, I think the a book that has really gotten to me is, and I don't know the English title, in German, it's Ein wenig Leben. I think it might be even a little life. A little life. It's, a, it's a novel, mm-hmm. um, and it's it's a huge book. And I know not a single person who has not cried throughout this whole book. It's amazing. Have you read it? No, no, okay, but I will now. You, yeah, you should read it. It's a book about it's about friendship and life and. It's it really it it really it will get to you. Like it's it's amazing. It's a really incredible book. My best friend, like my best friend, who gave me the Lean In book, he also gave me that book. Like he's a really good he's good for book recommendation. <laughs> you know, it's funny. So many people think that they're gonna get all their life lessons from nonfiction, but I have found some of my most profound life lessons have actually come from fiction. You know, they're so. So much rich narrative in there. All right, one other question I want to ask you. Um, in the in the similar vein, um, what what's on your playlist right now? What's uh, what's cycling? What are your jams? Yeah, easy. I mean, yesterday was the eleventh of November, so yesterday was Kanye um, from like all day long. Um, because I mean, I am from Aachen, which is a, a where we celebrate Carnival, um, and. Oh, and then it, it doesn't get cooler. Um, so yesterday was kind of well, and other than that, it's already Christmas. I'm a huge, like, I'm a Christmas addict. So I start Christmas uh, in October. It's, yeah, it's just, it's, I love it. I love it so much. And I um, I bake the first cookies and listening to, to Christmas music already. And yeah. Oh, awesome. <laughs> You're one of those. Christmas starts two months early. Awesome. Awesome. <laughs> Leah. Thank you. What a lovely conversation. What a great story. I I could literally do three episodes back to back on this. I would love to hear so much more. But um, hopefully as Avery continues to grow and grow in success, we can uh, do a follow up in the future and uh, get get an update. It was really, it was a pleasure. I loved uh, talking to you. And um, yeah, thanks so much for having me. It was my first podcast. Yeah, it was uh, was a great startup. Awesome, awesome. Thank you so much for your time, Leah. Yeah. Bye. Well, folks, that was Leah Grunhaga, VHU alum and co-founder of Avery Fertility. To learn more about Leah's work, go to avery-fertility.com or look them up on Instagram, Facebook, or LinkedIn. Next up, we'll be hosting Valerie Bernstrom, passionate mother, serial entrepreneur, PhD in computer science, and currently founder-CEO of Vaha and Pix Performance Sports, two fully integrated sports and therapy technologies that are as aesthetically pleasing as they are functional. We'll be discussing Valerie's incredible founder journey from soft-spoken engineer to powerhouse leader, the rocket fuel growth of the digital health and wellness industry, and one of my favorite topics, flow theory and the science of optimal performance. Until then, be sure to check out our website at mostawesomepodcast.com 
Follow our channel on YouTube and subscribe on Spotify, Apple, or your favorite podcast streaming service. Bis nächstes Mal.